You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. Um, I want to start this afternoon by, um, I, I, I need to share a story. It's not a story I'm real proud of, honestly. It's a little embarrassing, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. Uh, it, it had all the makings of a perfect weekend. Um, this was, my wife and I had been married for about a year, 2002, and we were headed out to Pittsburgh. We lived in Philadelphia at the time, and we were headed to Pittsburgh for a wedding. And, um, you know, it was one of the, the first out-of-town weddings that we went to as a couple, and it was going to be great. The wedding reception, the, the wedding was at this historic Presbyterian church in Pittsburgh, and then the reception was at Heinz Field in one of, like, the, the suites up there. Um, and, you know, it, it, had all, it had all the makings. Um, they, the, at the end, towards the end of the reception, there were fireworks that the father of the bride paid for, and we got to watch fireworks from Heinz Field, and uh, there was a lengthy uh, father, father of the bride and bride montage of pictures um, to the song Butterfly Kisses, of course, yeah, this is the early 2000s, um, and, and, and so it, it, it should have been a perfect weekend, but it wasn't because I had a bad attitude the whole time. You see, the wedding was for one of Sarah's college roommates, and she was a bridesmaid, which meant that she had actual responsibilities during the wedding. And it meant that I was kind of left alone at the table with like the awkward uncle that no one really wanted to talk to. And the whole time during the reception especially, I was just feeling sorry for myself. I was feeling bitter. Uh, I, was, I was pouting because Sarah was with her friends having fun and I was stuck at this table full in, in a reception where I didn't know that many people. Um, and and the, the main problem, of course, was that I had gone into this wed- wedding weekend expecting that it was going to be this great time for Sarah and me to connect and romantic and get to explore Pittsburgh. But the reality was so much different from that. And I, I actually left, the, I still remember this, Sarah and I talk about it probably more often than we should. I left the reception early because I was like so, so pouty. And I went to a cigar shop and just walked the streets of uh, Pittsburgh smoking a cigar by myself. So... Um, yeah, and, and I'd like to say that, you know, that was an isolated event, but as I was reflecting on that story um, this week, I realized that in many ways it's a microcosm of the last 20, 20 plus years of marriage. And I say that honestly because so much of marriage, so much of life, so much of our relationships are when our expectations aren't met, right? When, when life serves as something that's different from what we have expected and what we have built it up to be. And my tendency, personality-wise, in those moments is, is to pout, is to feel bad for myself and to make sure other people know about that. What about you? Can you identify with that feeling uh, when your expectations aren't met? Here, here's why I share that, and I think it's an important sort of lead into today's message, is because as we come to look at the life of Jesus, which we're doing through the Gospel of Luke, we see a number of people whose expectations for who Jesus 
would be they aren't met. Jesus, in other words, is very different from who people expect them to be. And, and this isn't just a Bible thing. This is a human thing, right? This is an us thing. How many times in your life does Jesus end up being different from what you expect? I think if we are honest with ourselves today as we read this passage from Luke 7, we're going to be challenged in some of our expectations of Jesus. So if you have a Bible with you today, open up to Luke chapter 7, and I'm going to read these verses, uh, verse 18 through 28. These words are also printed in the worship guide, and you're welcome to follow along there as well. This is God's word for God's people. Let's give it our attention. It says this, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, that's to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, if we're honest, many of us today came into this space feeling pensive, fearful, and doubting. But we trust that as we turn to your word and see your son on the pages of scripture, that our hearts will be encouraged. That's what an encounter with the living God made flesh can do for us. So we pray by the power of your spirit and out of your grace that you would comfort us and strengthen us. We ask that you would do this all for your great glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've started this new sermon series here at City Church a couple weeks ago. And we're considering the question throughout, who is Jesus? That's the first question we're answering. And then a second question that depends on that is, what is our response to who Jesus is? So uh, the first idea today is, who is Jesus? Well, we get an answer to that right away in this passage. And the answer comes to us through the question that John the Baptist asks. John the Baptist sends some of his followers, some of his disciples to Jesus with a question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? You see, John the Baptist is asking Jesus, are you the coming one? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the one that we have pinned our hopes on? Already in Luke chapter 7, we've seen that Jesus is uh, a man who comes with great authority. We've seen that Jesus is a man who comes with great compassion. And this question is starting to develop in people's minds. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In some ways, it's surprising that John the Baptist asked this question. He's essentially asking, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that Israel has been waiting for? And the reason it's surprising that John asked this question is that John already knows, or he should know. John is cousins with Jesus. And if you remember the very beginning of Luke's gospel, even when Mary comes to visit Elizabeth, John's mother, John leaps in the womb. Even before he was born, he recognized something about this Jesus. This is the same John who, uh, early in Jesus' ministry, baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. And do you remember what happened at that moment? A voice from heaven said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. John should know better, shouldn't he? Both by family and by experience, he should know that Jesus is the coming one. Why does he ask this question? Well, a little context helps. First of all, we learn in John, uh, sorry, Luke 3, verse 20, that John at this point is in prison. And trust me, prison food will cause you to doubt everything you once held is true. Now, I wasn't really in prison. I was just... But John is, and he's wondering in this moment, existentially, as Herod has thrown him into prison, and as he hears these reports of the things that Jesus is doing, he starts to doubt. He starts to doubt specifically because what Jesus is doing doesn't match his expectations of what the Messiah ought to be doing, what the Messiah would be doing you see it's that question of expectations and there's a little glimmer of hope even in the fact that John is sending these messengers to Jesus asking the question right because if John the Baptist if John the Baptist can express doubts over who Jesus is then maybe it gives us a little bit of permission to do that too that we can ask that question are you the one Jesus Are you the Messiah? Well, what is it that has shaped John the Baptist's expectations of who the Messiah would be? There are a couple of things. One, of course, is the Old Testament. And then, secondly, is John the Baptist's own ministry. Now, what what does the Old Testament say about the Messiah, about the coming one? Well, there are many places we could look, but the one I want to point your attention to is at the very end of the Old Testament. It's in the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 talks about the coming one of the Lord. And there it describes that the one who's coming will come with a refiner's fire and with fuller's soap. It will come burning in cleansing Fuller's soap is like uh, a caustic chemical, 
that drives away impurities to leave what is left over. You see, the images, the metaphors that John has in mind from the Old Testament are these powerful cleansing and purifying metaphors that when the Messiah comes, when the coming one of God arrives, he will drive out every impurity. And then in John's own ministry, we again see this in Luke chapter 3, it had a different tone about it. Because uh, John the Baptist came as if holding an axe in one hand and a pitchfork in another hand. These were the metaphors, these were the images that John came with. And he said, any tree that does not bear fruit, take that axe and chop it down. He would describe the the role of the coming one as uh, scooping a pitchfork full of grain and threshing that grain, winnowing that grain, so that the chaff, the waste, blows away in the wind and the good, true grain is left. You see, if we had to summarize it, John the Baptist's ministry and the Old Testament say that the coming one will come with judgment come with God's wrath and purify all the sin and evil in the world. That's what his expectation was. And so he begins to hear these reports of the stuff that we've read of of Jesus healing disease, letting the blind see, cleansing lepers, having compassion on a widow whose son has just died. He says, this doesn't add up. Are you the coming one? That's the situation that John finds himself in. And and then to uh, maybe not help his cause a whole lot, Jesus sort of gives these non-answers. Or he obliquely references other things in answer to these genuine questions that John and John's disciples come to him with. What Jesus does in our passage is rather than answering the question flat out saying, yeah, hey, John, I'm the coming one. You should know that already. He, uh, he just engages in kind of this uh, game of show and tell. He says, he starts healing people again. And he says to John's disciples, hey, go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the sick are made well. He healed many of diseases, we're told in verse 21. On many blind, he bestowed sight. And that word bestowed right there in verse 21, it's literally the word graced. He graced people with sight. John's expecting judgment. Jesus again and again is offering grace to the the poor and the marginalized and the hurting and the forgotten. What Jesus is doing, to use the phrase that I've used these last two weeks at City Church, is Jesus responds to these questions by doubling down on his generous authority. He says, I have all the power, but I also have all the kindness, and my heart is breaking for these people. It's a different view of the coming one. It's a different picture of who the Messiah would be. And then in verse 22, Jesus answers, John's disciples as well. And here he says, these same ideas, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. And this, John would surely have known, was a direct paraphrase or an echo of Isaiah, the 
the prophet, the great prophet of the Old Testament, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I am doing all the things that Isaiah said would happen when Messiah comes. Grant read for us this afternoon from Isaiah 35, and that's what Jesus is quoting. He's saying, I have showed up, and there's healing everywhere. Tears are wiped away. There's flourishing and wholeness and wellness. And John's smart enough to begin to put all of this together and saying, oh, it is the coming one. He just looks different than I thought he would. Now, the second part of Jesus' answer, Jesus begins to talk a little bit more about John. But, even as he's talking about John, what I want you to understand is that he's really talking about himself. It's kind of a Jesus juke move right here. He says in verse 24, what did you go out to see then? A, man, uh, a reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? You see, Jesus is asking these rhetorical questions. He says, you went out to the wilderness to see John the Baptist. You weren't going on a nature hike. You didn't go out there to check out the flora and fauna in the Jordan River. He says, you didn't go out there to, to uh, check out the latest fashion trends, to see a man dressed in soft clothing. You didn't go to the Jordan River to see the latest preacher in sneakers, right? You went to see a prophet. You went to see a prophet. And then what Jesus does is he begins to kind of uh, play up and emphasize how great John is. There is surely born of woman, there is no one greater than John. But the great reveal, and where Jesus uh, makes this about himself, is where he says, but I am greater still. You went out to the wilderness to see more than a prophet, but I am more than more than a prophet. I am greater still. What Jesus is saying is in me, there's a whole new category. There's a whole reorientation, a radical reorientation of all you thought about religion happens in me. Why? Because I'm the coming one. Unlike nothing you expected. This radical statement by Jesus. He's lifting up John, but then he's saying, I am even greater than John. Because I am bringing God's kingdom. I am the coming one, but I bring along with me God's coming kingdom. This kingdom of healing and wholeness and wellness and truth and love. That is who Jesus is. And Luke here in chapter 7 wants us to be clear that Jesus unequivocally is the coming one. He's the Messiah. He's the bearer of God's true kingdom. Well, what then is our response? That's who Jesus is. What is our response to who Jesus is? Well, the answer to that question comes to us in verse 23. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Here, Jesus gives us a beatitude. Blessed is and uh, if you were with us last summer here at City Church, you know that in Luke 6, Jesus has a, a, a list of four different Beatitudes. Here, Jesus is adding another one. 
He's sneaking another beatitude in and he's saying, blessed is the one who has not offended by me. Blessed are the not offended. And the Greek word here, translated offended, is skandalizo. It's uh, the same uh, root word for scandalon, or our English word, scandal. Jesus is saying, blessed are you if you're not scandalized by me. But the, the meaning of that word uh, in the, the Bible is a little bit more uh, to cause to stumble, to uh, cause to fall into sin. So basically what Jesus is saying is, blessed are you If you aren't led into the sin of unbelief by me, by the things I do, by the way I teach, by my authority, by my generosity, blessed are you if you don't doubt those things to the point of unbelief. Another way to put it would be this. God bless you if you don't give up on me when I'm a different savior than what you expected. God bless you if you don't give up on me. I think that's so helpful for us. It was a poignant statement to John and his disciples. It's equally poignant for us because I think we're poised in the same place that when Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, either in big ways or in small ways in each of our independent lives, we are prone to doubt. We are prone to give up on him. And Jesus is saying, blessed are you if you don't do that. So what are some of the ways then that you and I are prone to be offended by Jesus? Think about that for a minute. What, what is it about Jesus and his life and his teaching and his work that is prone to make you take offense, to prone to make you doubt? I'll give just a couple examples. We could talk about this for a long time, I think. One is that we often are offended by his authority. Particularly in the societal moment where we live, we, are, uh, we think Jesus' authority is an affront to our desire to affirm every idea. It's an affront to the uh, societal value of tolerance for everything. Jesus comes with a truthful authority that many of us find offensive in our lives. You really believe that Bible? You really believe the things that Jesus teaches in there? Yeah. Yeah. That can be offensive. But equally offensive, I think, for some of us, we are offended by Jesus' grace. We are offended by the fact that he is both with and has regard for the poor and marginalized. Because our expectation of God come down is that he would rule and take all the glory for himself. And be in a palace. And be with the rich and powerful. And yet again and again, Jesus, our Savior, the true coming one, takes the side of the poor. And the least of these. And that's offensive. That can cause us to stumble. That the the way of Christ, that the way of Christians would be on the outside, far from the centers of power? No. We should be in the Oval Office. We should be on the highest court in the land. 
we should be for the weak and the wounded and the marginalized and the discarded. There's a great quote from Fleming Rutledge that summarizes this point. I put it at the top of the worship guide. It says this, We did not want or expect that kind of Messiah, a Messiah who would be so obscure and so humble and in the end so rejected. We expected power. We expected victory. We expected triumph. But as Jesus clearly indicated to John by quoting Isaiah, the decisive moment has come just the same. The signs of the kingdom prophesied by Isaiah have taken place in Jesus, but they were and they remain hidden signs. Signs for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, for those who will not take offense. Do you take offense at the signs of Jesus' kingdom? Or do you receive Jesus as the coming one? Now, what I want you to see is that we can be offended by Jesus' authority. We can be offended by his grace. But ultimately, what the New Testament makes clear is that the center of the offense of Jesus Christ is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ. That's the symbol. That's where all of this kind of uh, climaxes and focuses. It's the cross that's an offense. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, a scandalon, an offense. It's the cross, friends, that is the chief offense, the chief offense of Jesus Christ. You know why the cross offends us so much? Because it means that our sin matters. You you can't look at the cross and avoid your sin. But the cross of Jesus Christ is such an offense because our sin cannot be swept under the rug. We cannot turn a blind eye to it. We can't shrug our shoulders and say, well, it's okay. No. Our sin requires punishment. Punishment that Jesus took on the cross for us. That's offensive. It's offensive the first time you hear it, and it's offensive every Sunday when you sit here and recite a confession of sin and think that Jesus went to the cross so that those sins wouldn't be held against you. But here's what I want you to see about that cross, and here's how I think this whole uh, story hangs together. Do you remember what it was that Uh, John was so offended about? John the Baptist, what was he looking for in the coming one that he didn't see? Judgment. Judgment. You see, Jesus fulfilled the judgment that John was expecting just in an unexpected way because Jesus fulfilled it on the cross. In that moment, all of the judgment, All of the refining fire, all of the fuller's soap was poured out on Christ so that it wouldn't be poured out on you. He's the coming one who brings judgment but also bears judgment for you and me. Here's the other reason the cross is offensive. The cross is offensive because it means we can't deny our sin. The cross is also offensive because the other little Jesus juke 
is that you are going to bear a cross too. It's not just that Jesus goes to a cross, but he says to his followers, pick up your cross and follow me. He says, the way to life is through your dying. And that's as offensive today as it was when Jesus first spoke it. What I'm saying here is something I've said before, that for Christians, for us, the cross is not only the content of our faith, it is also the form of our faith. So we become in the world those who walk the way of a cross. That's offensive. But that's the generous authority with which Jesus lived. There's one final dimension to Jesus' beatitude here, the, the response that he is calling forth from. For, from his disciples or those who would be his disciples. Remember I said, it's, do not be offended at me. But there's another dimension to that, sort of another unfolding of that that I want you to, to notice in this passage. And it's, it's where Jesus says to the disciples who come to him, he says in verse 22, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. You see, it's less... It's less that Jesus is saying, don't doubt, never doubt. What he's saying is that when you doubt, when those moments come, like they came to John, remember what you have seen and heard. Remember who I am. And then respond in faith. It's the same for us today. That's why, we, that's why we read the Bible. That's why this sermon series on Luke is so helpful because it gives us an opportunity week after week to see and hear again Jesus. The way he was with others, the way he is with us. His heart towards us. So he says, remember what you have seen and heard and then implicitly in, in this, there's another response too. Did you catch it? It's go and tell. It's go and tell. That's how we know that we're not offended at Jesus Christ is that we go and tell others about Jesus Christ. We go and tell others what we have seen and heard. Let me tell you about a man who had compassion on me. Let me tell you about a Savior who didn't count my sins against me. Let me tell you about a Christ who didn't come with judgment on me, but bore judgment for me. Go and tell. Go and tell. It's simple evangelism. We always make evangelism so hard. Apologetic seminar this. Philosophical proofs that. No, go and tell what you have seen and heard. That's how you'll know that you are not offended at Jesus, at the coming one. Several months ago, I was reading in uh, Christianity Today, and they have this section with just little news blurbs from across the world, and one caught my eye. It was about Neymar, you know, the Brazilian soccer player. He plays for Paris Saint-Germain. And he's a Christian, a faithful Christian. He's been outspoken about his faith repeatedly. He is someone who has gone and told what he has seen and heard about Jesus Christ. That doesn't play well with the management of Paris Saint-Germain. So there's a clause in his contract 
And he gets paid to not speak about Jesus. $630,000 a month. So that he won't go and tell what he has seen and heard about Jesus Christ. I read that and I said, I don't know if I would go and tell people about Jesus Christ if they were paying me $630,000 a month. How different it is when we're captured by the gospel. When we see Jesus as the coming one and we aren't offended at him. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ for us, filled with all authority, filled with all compassion, bringing judgment against sin, our sin, as the sinless one, but coming as well in the most unexpected way. Thank you today that through your word and through this service and by your spirit, we have had a chance to see and hear again the wonder of Christ. Help us to not doubt, to not stop believing, to not be offended at him. And instead, send us out as your messengers, whispering of your grace, shouting of your glory, so that the world would know that you're the coming king. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.